Anybody who's been around for the past month is probably inundated in everything about Utopia Planitia. Um, <laughs> we've had uh, ModCon. We know we've been covering it for the last two weeks here on Continuing Conversations. There's been some amazing interviews like on Heavy.com. You can see some written interviews. So uh, it's just amazing the crossover love that's happening between STO and STA right now. I'm Michael Dismuke with Continuing Missions, the blog, of course, uh, which is the number one fan site for Star Trek Adventures RPG. I'm also a freelance writer for Star Trek Adventures. Had my hand a little bit in the Utopia Planitia, but it ain't about me today, because today, if you've been following for the last three weeks, today's the day we talk all about ships, and we're going to take you places you've never gone before. And the reason why is because we have experts with us today. But Jim, first introduce yourself, um, and then let's go ahead and go around and introduce our other two guests today. Yeah, sure thing, Michael. Thanks a lot. Uh, Jim Johnson. I am the project manager and line editor for the Star Trek Adventures role-playing game published by Modifius Entertainment. And uh, we have two wonderful guests with us tonight, Aaron Pelea and Thomas Maroney. I'm going to have them introduce themselves right now. So I'm going to go straight below me on the on the call here. Thomas, introduce yourself. I'm Thomas Maroney. I'm the associate art director for Star Trek Online, the free-to-play massively multiplayer uh, officially licensed <laughs> Star Trek game set in the Star Trek universe where you can create your own uh, Starfleet. Uh, well, not just Starfleet, um, uh, but Star Trek crew. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough to get to contribute both art and words to the Topia Panisha ship book, including uh, several Star Trek Online ships that uh, became canon with the season two of Star Trek Picard. So it was really thrilling to bring that uh, to Star Trek Adventures with this book. Awesome. Thank you, Thomas. And Aaron, introduce yourself. I'm Aaron Pallier. I'm a freelance writer for Modifius. Uh, I, I, the guy that does hold a lot of the starships, uh, a lot of the science, a lot of the technology. I've, I've done some of the missions, the standalone missions, things like that. You see my name in a lot of the books. So I've, I've had my hand on a lot of different types of things in Star Trek Adventures. Mm -hmm. And uh, Aaron, I will apologize. I think I consistently introduce you as Aaron Palea. So my apologies. I've written myself a note that it's Polly, 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 Polly. No, so that's okay. I've got, I got, a, I got a post-it note. It's on my monitor now. I will never ever forget. <laughs> well, the <laughs> other one is his. His other one is his mirror universe counterpart. Just so you know, so it's just that you're dipping in two universes. <laughs> that, that's the guy that's clean shaven. Clean yeah. shaven, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. This was a good segue, though, uh, Aaron. Your introduction. And the reason why is I'm going to do something really cool and get into the minds of Aaron and Thomas right now. I uh, there's been a lot of talk. A lot of you have seen interviews. Um, with both these uh, gentlemen about Utopia Planitia, I wanted to do something different because continuing conversation is really getting about getting to the heads of the fans and the writers together. Myself and Aaron were having a conversation, which I'll segue into this one, and it was about the psychology behind how you build a ship frame. And one of the first things I asked Aaron, I want Thomas your take on it too after Aaron um, responds about it, is how is a fan coming into Star Trek supposed to view the term class? Like what makes a class of a ship? How is that determination made? Aaron, talk to us about, you gave me an analogy and I'd like to 
hear what you said and get well, Thomas. My first it. analogy wasn't uh, my, my yeah. My first analogy wasn't very good. Let's put it that way. I was trying to talk about like the, the difference between species and families of species. But okay, uh, and I said fine. Okay, think about Corvettes. A Corvette has been built since like 1952, I, I think. Um, and all Corvettes are a class. Corvette, you know, cars we're talking about. But over the years, they've looked different. They have been refit. Uh, so a Corvette can be considered a class. Let's say it has four wheels. It has the same structure. It has the same general purpose. It's a sports car. It's there for guys to look good in. It might have an open top. It might not. But it's not really meant to be a family car. It's meant to evoke a certain feeling. So that would be like a class and how it's looked different over the years is how it's been refit. Okay. Okay. Thomas, your take on class. <laughs> so uh, it's um, and, and how Star Trek adventures approaches class might be a bit different than how I think about it. Um, the model that we typically use in, in STO is, is where it's much more specific in terms of um uh, if a ship is built out uh, as a certain type, um, it, like Aaron says, it's a family, but um, but you can get to a point where there might be um, enough variation to branch off to a different type of of a member of the family, and and that goes from uh, being a um, just another member of the class to being its a, its own class. So typically in Navy, um, you in the U.S. Navy um, and a lot of navies follow this convention. You have the first um, ship is uh, has a, it's 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 a little bit of a chicken and egg where you have um, this uh, program. The Navy Department of the Navy is like, oh, we need we need a new destroyer. And these are the things it needs to do. And so they create a whole bunch of subcommittees and um, and those people go off and they, you know, then they send out, you know, RFPs to different defense contractors and then and um, and then there are bids and Lockheed Martin says, well, we can build this destroyer for you for, you know, $10 billion. And these are all the things that we're going to promise it's going to do and we'll deliver it by X date. And, um, and then at some point in the process, that destroyer gets a name. And then, uh, so one of the most recent ones is the Zumwalt uh, class destroyer, the USS Zumwalt. And then if the Navy decides to order more Zumwalts, then that though all those other ships that are uh, built after the first USS Zumwalt become Zumwalt class ships. So, um, so it's a, it's certainly a murky and long bureau bureaucratic process where, um, you're, uh, you're trying to create a system by which that you uh, can organize all these bureaucracies to, to think about these giant, very intricate machines in a way that um, makes it possible for them to be built and evaluated and iterated upon. And, and the class is kind of a tool in, in sort of wrapping your brain around that. Now, um, you might have variation with a, within a class, like Aaron says, where um, in the Navy, you have blocks of certain classes. So you have um, block one is sort of this is the very first model of like the Arleigh Burke class destroyer. Um, and then there will be some refits and they'll add some missile tubes or take some missile tubes away. But structurally, that is still um, an Arleigh Burke. And they did this with the uh, Iowa class battleships after World War II. Um, I think the USS Missouri they uh 
severely, extremely refit it, but it was still at its heart, still that original Iowa class ship, just, just, um, renovated and everything. Now, if, if somebody, if they decided to build a new US, like a new Iowa class, uh, excuse me, a new ship like the USS Missouri from the ground up that had all of the, like all the cruise missiles and electronic warfare suites and stuff that the Missouri had at that point, they might actually call it a Missouri class battleship instead of a, uh, an Iowa class because it's not built to the original Iowa spec. It's built to the Missouri spec. So that's a very like that, that, that lens of kind of naval military science is the the lens that I like to look through uh, all the stuff that we do with Star Trek online and the, the Star Trek online lore. So I know it's a bit in the weeds, but that's no, um, it's, it's hmm? not in the weeds. We're here for the, weeds. <laughs> no, no, so no. And, Jim, yeah. And I, I generally agree with everything Thomas has said, actually. Yeah. It, it, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, that the bones of the ship are kind of the things that make it what it is, what class it is. It's kind of why when Enterprise got refit from its TOS version to the movie era version, it's still a Constitution class, even though it looks different because her bones are still the same. Her general systems, while they've been updated, are still the same and in the same places overall. Yeah, it's a, it's a big refit, have no doubt, but still a Constitution, right? Yeah, got it. And I, I know it's a little early, but um, you know, you, Thomas, you said we're, we went in the weeds a little bit. I want to actually go a little further into the weeds. And I know, <laughs> I, like, I'm really going to just geek out over this. And what I, what I, what I have trouble with, um, because there are so, and specifically speci speaking of Star Trek now, there are so many classes and subclasses and alternate names uh, out there in both Twitter and just in the general, you know, fandom space. That because like, there's so many great people right now making renders, making their own ship designs, making their own ship classes. And, and like even reading some of your stuff, Aaron, where you're talking about like, oh, this is a block two, block three, whatever. And then there's the subclasses and sub variants of classes. And like, I, I've even been, you know, watching uh, um, the, the recent blog posts by Bill Krauss. And uh, I, I don't remember the names off the top of my head. A couple of the production people that are in the, in the show, uh, Dave, uh, Dave Blass and Terry Metallic. Yeah, so yeah. They're, they're talking about some of the new ships that are going to be showing up in Picard 3 are like Constitution 2s or Constitution 3s, or I, I don't remember the specific details. Uh, I was just wondering if you could go, both of you could go into a little bit more detail on like, how do you differentiate a class from a subclass to a block to a block two, block three, to a, you know, all these different very, very granular subcategories? Because this is one of the challenges I had when we were putting Utopia Planitia together was like, well, is this a separate class or is it a subclass? Like, where does it belong? Does it does it need its own two page spread or can it be like mentioned in a paragraph or like what's the deal here? So so uh, enlighten me and then by extension enlighten the the casual fan who may who may know starships but may not know the 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 grady gradations. Would you so, like? Oh, go ahead, Thomas. Well, I mean the the sort of the sort of rule of thumb I have in my head about it is, could you take could you take a Nebula class ship, for example, that, you know, the very first Nebula class ship in the line, and could you take that and turn it into, like, could you take the Phoenix that we saw in the Wounded and TNG and turn it into the Sutherland that you saw in Redemption, right? And and you could. All you have to do is swap the pod, right? That's the, Those are the only big, big visual differences that we see, right? And so those are variants of an existing class, right? Um, but then if you get to a point where you're you're looking at the the structure of something and like if you take the constitution uh and the excelsior 
And you you can't upgrade a constitution class to an Excelsior class because the mass difference is so vast and the the, the shape like if you it I think it helps to imagine the skeleton of a ship, I think, when answering this question. Um it you know. Uh, just like people, ships have skeletons. They have frames, and 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 you can kind of see this whenever the Enterprise gets destroyed, or you know, like they cut a hole in it, or whatever. Um, there are like spokes and frames that uh, that block out the the internal structure of the ship. Uh, this is just like real um, sailing ships. Real mil- military vessels have frames that um, kind of uh, demarcate each like different sections of the boat, like ribs. If you think of rib cage, right? Um, so Federation starships have rib cages like that. Mm-hmm. And so if you have to do something where the rib cage no longer works and you have to pull out the whole rib cage, that's essentially starting over, right? That, that be, then it becomes to me, um, a new class of ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, but otherwise, you know, if it's like, well, you can like cut out these pieces. There's a, I was actually asking my friend, Andy Presby, who's in the, U, he's a retired U S Navy. He used to build submarines. He was, um, uh, commander, you know, an XO on a, on the submarine for, for a little bit, um, nuclear, uh, nuclear physicist. And now he, he designs rocket, like rocket engines, <laughs> but he was saying that there was actually a class of, um, I think it was Virginia, class subs where they they made a variant where they kind of cut a hole in the middle of it and extended it out mm-hmm. to add more missiles or something and then welded it back together but like the front and the back are still the same right but the, the actual ship is longer and so that was like a block three or something mm-hmm. um so so that's sort of the 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 kind of skeleton test or frame test is kind of what i what i use in my mind to determine is this a variant or is this something totally new and that's why i consider uh, incidentally, most of the things that we've done for Star Trek Online, I consider them new classes because they were all original construction in the sense of almost none of them were refit from a pre-existing ship. They were designed and built, you know, um, ex nihilo or from nothing. And then the and then also like the the actual internal structure and how the the shape, the cross section of the ships is so different that you couldn't turn a nebula into a Sutherland, for example. So that's um, that's been my reasoning. Um, and I know we kind of we kind of had some back and forth on that. Yeah. Yeah. And Aaron, before you before you uh, offer your insights, just one clarifying question for me, Thomas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, from from all that perspective, it totally makes sense to me. Um, help help my my uh, my whole my my knowledge when they when they took the Constitution class from the twenty two uh, you know twenty two sixties early twenty two seventies and they completely refit it into the movie era kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like they were really tearing up the the skeleton, as you were saying, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think they kept like the very 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 poor. Yeah, I but, well, and I and and if you ask my buddy Andy, that's he said that he would say that's why it's not actually a refit. <laughs> like yeah. like like in, class, in right? his Navy brain, it does not make sense as a refit. It's too different. Yeah. Um, the size is different. That the the subtle shapes and stuff are different. But I mean, you know, we we just sort of it's generated it's gotten steam and that's how they present it in canon so we could just go along with that but Got it. Okay. um but you could maybe they kept it maybe they kept it for good luck in there mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what they did yeah i mean well scott and scott he says in the dialogue he's like this is an almost totally new enterprise right yeah. and yeah. and i'm not actually sure i mean that 
I, I wonder if maybe Starfleet did it because at that time they were just so desperate for hulls because all the other Constitution class ships have been destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, we can't <laughs> afford to throw it out. Right. Um, right. Uh, or right. or it could be, uh, you know, I mean, sailors are a suspicious lot, right? It could be like yeah. Michael says, where they just, yeah. you know, she she was the only one to make it back, according to the, I think, the novelization of TMP, right? That uh, the Enterprise was the only one to make it back. And so they were going to keep her alive as long as they could. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, Aaron, anything to add to, uh, to all that? Yeah, I, I kind of, I mean, I, I mostly like 99% agree with Thomas. Like there's a couple ways that I, I tend to look at it a little bit differently. Like blocks, when I mentioned blocks, those are refits. So like if you're building a constitution class from scratch, right when it was first designed, that's the first block, right? That's That's unmodified stats. But after its first refit, you might build block two that has an improvement to its engines and it, its stat is bumped up. Yeah. It's just a refit, but it, now you're building block two constitutions and then block three constitutions in, in what the 2260s. So they might all resemble the TOS enterprise at that point, those block threes, because they're built being built to the same standards as the refits of that era. Um, subclasses, I would say are ones that are built 90% to the same standard, but might be built by other member worlds to a slightly different spec. So um, your Andorian constitutions might have a subclass because, well, they tend to like phasery things and they might put on more phaser banks. It might be a little more tweaked towards weapons or speed, where the Tellarites might have more communications or computers for some reason. Um those are the subclasses. It's generally the same ship, but slightly different systems. It has the same outline. Um, the constitution refit to me is the same class. This is where like Thomas and I might disagree a little. It is the same class because it's the same general outline. It's the same general size within like 5%. You can see like some sections were, were stretched a little bit, but like the original saucer generally fits in the refit saucer. The secondary hull's not right. Yeah, you have to do some tweaks with the secondary hull for sure. And then the nacelles are just nacelles. You can swap out nacelles all the time. So if there's a big shift in nacelles, it, it, that's, not, that's not that big of a difference. That's, that's a block or a refit. This is, I have to say, I'm the average Star Trek geek. I never have claimed to be the in the weeds level that both of you are, or even Jim, any close to it. But me being able for the first time to really understand classes, I, I don't know if this has been done anywhere before this this conversation. <laughs> so I'm I'm digging it. I mean this this yeah, is I love serious. it. Yeah, and it's okay. It's totally cool for us to all like have differing views on yeah. exactly what a class is. Because I think in universe even then, like the writers, you know, when they're right. writing a show, have, have have a different view on what exactly is what. So, hey, great. Go with it. Right. Yeah, whatever. I mean, ultimately, it's your game, right? When you're running a game, you can just decide, you know, this is um, this is the Unikitty class um, mm-hmm. Super Dreadnought. And that, that's, you know, have fun. God bless. Um, yeah. uh, one thing I did want to say, though, um, about blocks and everything. So um, and you what you you might find, too, is that. Um, you take the whatever you call the constitution refit, you can call it a block three or block four or whatever, but um, you can also then build new construction 
to that spec. And then that would just be that ship would be called a block three constitution mm-hmm. class. Right. Yep. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and then, and so it's all, it, it is all kind of vague because you have that sort of block, uh, descriptor, but then you might also have somebody say, well, this is a, um, you know, enterprise B type Excelsior. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it they'll either they can use the block terminology or they can give it the name of the the first ship in the subclass like all of this stuff is valid and and you know that's i think one of the great things about learning you know diving into the the way the navy does stuff is it's so dang confusing and there's so many so many different ways to say the same thing um but i love that because it makes the universe feel textured and real and you know um uh and it, it reminds you that these are you know starfleet is a ma- just like the navy starfleet is a massive bureaucracy i mean it's bigger than the u.s navy right it's probably got like millions of people literally millions of people working for it across you know mm-hmm. dozens of planets so um so there's a lot of so i think that's kind of a fun thing to think about when you're making your campaign is the and i think there's some of that in this book too is like this is what the day-to-day things you have to deal with as a Starfleet officer. There's not the sexy beaming down the planet stuff. It's like, well, I got to file these logistics reports or else, you know, the Admiral's not going to renew my, uh, Oh, what I love about it too is, you know, the book only has so many pages and Jim always talks about how it has to edit out all this extra stuff, but hearing both of you speak to this depth about it, then I now I'm going back to look at these, these stat blocks and these space frames and be like, wow, so much thought. And now I'm understanding it a, little, a lot better, actually now a little bit better, a lot better, which is one of the goals I said, I wanted to take this interview in a different way than any of the other ones you've done about Utopia Planitia so that people, the goal listening or watching this is, okay, now that you understand the fundamentals of Navy design, which we're talking about, Navy design, whether you want to play with a standard ship or you really want to construct your own ship, you could all of a sudden say, you know what? I have an entirely different class ship. I don't have a Corvette here. I have something never seen before. And that's where your imagination can take you, right? That That's kind of exciting about what we're going to talk about today. Chapter four of Utopia Planitia Federation Space Frames is we have the formula to do everything Aaron and Thomas just talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to I want to just add before we go into the next bit. Um, I think I think this is the book that really, really crystallized it for me. I think, Aaron, you had talked you, or you had written this into some of the other books, into some of the other descriptions of other ships and other books that we've done. But I don't think it really crystallized until I worked on this book, partly because there were so many space frames. I had so many space frames to edit. I was constantly reading the same stories. I'm mean, not the same stories, but I was, I was getting the same concepts hit at me page after page after page. And it really sunk in that that like, like what Thomas was saying, you know, the Navy has very particular ways of doing things, but Starfleet is like, uh, it's a Navy on steroids because it's not just earth Starfleet. It's, it's mm-hmm. all Starfleet. It's, it's everybody. And it, it really drove, like I, I caught, I've told this story a couple of times where in, in editing this book, I would catch myself stopping editing and just starting to imagine storylines and, and plot seeds and hooks and things like, like, Oh, wait a minute. What, what if there's a, what if there's a, uh, you know, a fleet yard in orbit around Bay, you know, a uh, uh, beta Z, how would mm-hmm. they approach building this space frame differently than, than they would, you know, somewhere else. And it's like, Oh gosh, what, what if they did this and they did this because they have a different design philosophy and maybe mm-hmm. they, maybe they take the stock, uh, uh, you know, uh, intrepid class and maybe they decide to add a few tweaks to it and all of a sudden it's still an intrepid 
but now it's a you know it's a beta z intrepid instead of a, mm-hmm. a you know mars intrepid or something and that just got the story idea spinning even further um and then i took it a step further because we had been working on the shackleton book right and i was mm-hmm. like oh how how could i take these these philosophies that you're plugging into these different um space frames and apply that to a completely alien species building their own spaceships like how mm-hmm. would how would uh you know how would the uh, the akaru approach building a a super optimized, super efficient ship compared to the Packleds, who would just you know clump ships and throw stuff together back and forth. Mm. And what's their design philosophy different? So I just I, I just love the fact that you both put so much detail into your write ups, and that there's just so many ways you could spin this toolkit that we have, and to make just like all kinds of crazy stuff. So I'm just I'm gonna ask a question about yeah. I want I want to ask a question about that toolkit, and I want the STA answer, and I want the STO answer. So on page <laughs> 58 of the Utopia Planitia book, um, Aaron, you wrote the system points chart. And so this is kind of a, a, a way to frame at this time period, you can have so many points to put toward design of a ship. Okay, I'm going to yep. come back to that in a second, Aaron. But I have to ask Thomas, when you're designing STO ships, are there also limits? Are there? Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you do that? Um, so, well, so there are, I, I'm uh, the associate art director, so I primarily uh, work with the visuals of the ships, like what they look like. But then we have another uh, discipline called um, game system design. Um, and those guys are the ones who actually create the stats of the ship and how they operate in the game. Um, they do have um, a, you know, it's not quite the same as like you have so many points to allocate um, between these systems, uh, but it, it sort of is in the sense of, um, all of our new new ships are what we call the you know, tier six ships or ships that um, uh, can operate, you know, at the the end game or whatever. They have a, a fixed power level. And so um, they, that means they have a certain amount of what we call bridge officer seats um, and they have a certain amount of what we call console slots and uh, and weapons um slots and so a, a lot of the designing the ship is sort of moving those numbers around just like what, what aaron does in terms of well if we want this to be an engineering focused ship then most of its bridge officer abilities are going to be engineering inspired most most of its console slots are going to have to do with engineering but if it's like an engineering hybrid tactical ship then you'll have like mostly engineering but then like its second most powerful you know lean will be in tactical and and that gives you you know sto has sort of the same it's it's a classic star trek split of you know um tactical um and command for us is tactical uh tactical uh science and engineering right and so ships can lean in those three directions. And then there are lots of different types of ships that are very hybrid. So like a destroyer is a hybrid. Um, uh, it's, it's mostly an escort, but it has a little bit of engineering. So it's a little, a little tankier than like a normal escort. That's like purely focused on tactical, for example. Got it. The reason I asked that was because we talked about this before is like Star Trek Adventures is not a level up game. You know, you're not trying to build the ultimate starship that can blow away planets. And so I like <laughs> to know that, you know, you got the STO frame. Now you got ST or STO kind of, you know, you were saying the game designers build around that. And then we have STA, Aaron, talk to us a little bit again about that why those limitations for Star Trek Adventures work for the narrative that is Star Trek. Well, it's you don't want to have your ship be ultimately powerful regardless of the era, but you also want to have ships that are from different eras be able to be compared to each other. So earlier ships um, from earlier eras are going to be generally less capable. Their systems aren't going to be as advanced. So 
your NX class isn't going to have as high of stats as a constitution or a galaxy. Um, but it's not just about the quality of the systems. It's about how much, how many systems you can actually pack into the space frame. So the size of the, the scale of the ship also helps determine how many system points you're able to pack in. Now, if you look, departments aren't touched. That's about like the personnel that you put on board the ship, how trained they are, um, how specialized the crew is in certain departments. So ships that have a high command score generally have better command officers, better diplomats, um, generally more communication systems, not always, but because that's a system. But it goes with all the different departments. So um, in in general, you want to have lower systems earlier on to compare to and then higher systems later on. Um, You also want to see a difference between pre-Federation starships and Federation starships. So before the Federation, we clearly know that the Vulcans had been tooling around forever and had far more advanced ships than United Earth. Same with the Romulans. In general, the Andorians and the Tellarites were supposedly kind of the same because the Vulcans, quote unquote, made the mistake of actually sharing technology with them. And they didn't want to repeat that mistake with humans. Mm -hmm. Um, So they tried to be on the same par. That's why if you all make starships from like, let's say 2070, um, your human made starship is generally going to be less capable than a Tellarite starship from the same era. Okay. So before we get into that, so everyone, you know, listening or watching again, that's the reason you have a limited number of points or all the reasons mm-hmm. Aaron just said, but then I have to, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this question to Jim because you're a big game master and storyteller. And this is how I think in my mind, I'm like, really, do I really believe the United Federation of planets and the entire galaxy have the most advanced ships? No, there must be someone out there who could blow people away. So how do you <laughs> handle that from a narrative sense when you like, Take take Aaron's design of the Borg cubes in the discover in, in uh, the uh, Delta, Delta Quadrant package, they're, right? They're scary, aren't they? Right. So, nar- <laughs> so narratively, um, what do you? What are some of the caveats if you're a game master? Like, no, I'm trying to show that there's maybe some more advanced species in the Federation out here. How do you still make it a playable game, ship to ship? Any ideas about that? For me or or Jim? But anybody, I was going to give a chance to Jim because I know he's a. Oh, game go ahead, Jim. I mean, that's a, that's a tough question for me because I lean into the narrative more than anything else. Like I, I'm more interested in the narrative than I am in the statistics and, and, you know, no, no, no slide against the statistics or anything, but it's just like, um, like I, I thought the the stuff that you did for the Borg and the Delta Quadrant book was great because at least numerically it showed just how incredibly powerful those ships were. And it also narratively kind of like hopefully drilled home the idea that if you're a player character ship, you, you shouldn't be going toe to toe with the board. You should be getting the hell out of there or negotiating or something because that's what we saw on screen for the most part is that you do not, you do not directly engage the board. You, you, you go around because you, you send a fleet at them, you're going to lose, right? Mm-hmm. We saw two fleet engagements against board, board um, cubes and, and they both got pretty well hammered. And, uh, you know, first contact's a little bit different than, than uh, Wolf 359, obviously, but like Wolf 359, that was like when that, that first came out on, on TV, and we were seeing that yeah. live for the first time. It was like, oh, my yeah. gosh, the Federation just got their asses kicked, you know, or the bus mm-hmm. kicked, excuse me. <laughs> and like you saw the wreckage and the pieces of ships flying around. It's like, oh, my gosh, we just got, we got our mm-hmm. you know, butts handed to us, really. And that really drove home the drama of like, oh, maybe there are fights you should run away from. 
You know, this isn't like some games where you just go toe to toe and you duke it out until you're victorious or you're dead. Like, no, it's perfectly okay to run away or to, <laughs> to beat a strategic retreat and, uh, and and come back and, you know, find a different approach. Because that's really what Star Trek's all about, right? It's finding another approach to a problem. The border, just a big, gigantic problem. And you just got to find another way to do it. And, and that's how I would approach it, Michael, mm -hmm. in answer to your question. If, if I present my players with a big, insurmountable ship or station or thing that just like, statistically is just off the charts and they're like, oh, you know, because I got I got a couple of players who are into the mechanics and are into the into the stats, and they'll be like, "Wait a minute, that thing has a you know twenty five shields. None of our weapons can even hope to penetrate that. What are you doing? We can't hope. We can't possibly win." It's like, well, you you know, maybe yeah. from a toe to toe fight, you can't win. But what's <laughs> what's you know? Yeah. So yes, and you know, right. what's, I what's, was, yeah. You know, yeah, that's why I thought it was important to talk about that because. Yeah. Uh, the goal is not to build the ultimate ship to be to take on the board within a year of playtime. You know, it's to, it's to really still balance the game mechanics through the narrative. Anything See, before I, I move? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with with Jim. I think in the um, when we were writing the core book, uh, when the idea well, the idea was always there to put the Borg in there. My honest first suggestion was not to put a stat block in for the Borg and mm. just say that the Borg are going to win unless narratively you come up with a really good idea of how to defeat them. Yeah. That there really shouldn't be stats here. And then, and then no, no, okay, Aaron, you need to make stats. All right, so let's make the Borg cube scary. But the Borg cube ends up not being the scariest Borg thing out there. And so Delta Quadrant came out and I had to make even more frightening things but if you want to have like a more advanced ship like that that your players are going against um let's say like that borg um scout ship that hugh was in uh, was on at one point uh maybe it's you know a century more advanced than the federation well great and you want stats for it great uh put put 10 more system points in there for an extra century and, and it, it's it's a really good shorthand it might not be great as great of a a, a thing narratively speaking because i'm i'm with jim that narratively it the narrative should actually drive it all but if you're like well i do want to give it stats yeah dang it that should have been an inset box we didn't have that little <laughs> inset box that's great yeah all right, right. Yeah. That's, the, that's the interesting challenge, right? Because like uh, just just thinking about it, um, Star Trek has tons of examples of huge, massive things mm -hmm. that, that are like narratively really interesting. But statistically, I mean, there's no need for statistics. I'm thinking about like the planet killer, the Dyson mm -hmm. sphere, the crystalline entity, mm -hmm. uh, the whale probe, the whale probe, and even V'ger, right? I mean, you don't need stats for these things. Why would you use stats? Just it hits you, you die. Or yeah, you get, you get scanned into Vijay's memory banks, and then you're, you yeah. live on forever in a different format, right? <laughs> your uh, your dice for for damage on the Vijay yeah. scanning and thing Thomas, is just yes. Yeah, and Thomas, <laughs> I just have to ask again because I like making the STO comparisons because mm -hmm. this is perfect marriage of those two games. This this book, um, I, and I haven't not had time. I played STO when it first came out. I just didn't mm -hmm. have time because I'm such a tabletop fanatic. But but are there things in STO that are undefeatable and you're supposed to retreat from? I don't know. Uh, I mean, STO is a very different animal in that sense because one of the major points of MMOs is progression. And you want to feel after you've put hundreds of hours in your character that, the, that you are the unstoppable, you know, uh, 
uh, baddie or, you know, the unstoppable force of nature in the universe because, you know, you've leveled up all your gear, you love your max level character, you've got all the best abilities. So, I mean, there are people who, uh, we have a, a group who plays Star Trek Online called the DPS League, Damage for Second League, and they are competing with each other constantly. Like, oh, I did you know four hundred thousand damage in this run, or or six hundred thousand damage, or whatever. And you know, and a, a typical player who uh, end game might do you know maybe like eight thousand or ten thousand, right? So the the game to them is just maxing out everything and and trying to and so the effect of that is when they're playing is like, oh there's a board cube, not anymore. You know, like literally <laughs> in seconds they'll blow <laughs> it up. But that's uh but that's that's the fun to them. That's and that, cool. you know the Star Trek Online, it's an MMO, but it actually is a very single player friendly game. So mm-hmm. if you want to play through the story and experience the game you want to, you totally can and you don't have to worry about other people ruining that you know like ruining whatever sort of experience you want um but so we when the ship blows up coins don't fly everywhere no, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> <Gotta make sure. laughs> but we do have content that people are supposed to play together and so you run into those people in that in the, what we call tfos uh task force operations um you know that's a lot of their people content and stuff but in terms of story missions we do have some instances where uh, a ship might have plot armor for a minute just because we need, you know, we're telling a story and it's not time for that thing to be blown up yet. But because if we did that, didn't do that, there would definitely be people in the game who could blow up immediately. <laughs> that's fascinating. I mean, I love, I love that serving the both audiences. That's really cool. Wow. That was a great act one for this interview so far. <laughs> um, going, going into act two, um, again, like I was saying, I was trying to figure out what would set this different so that people who've been keeping up on Utopia Planetia release would, would, would watch or listen to this and be like, whoa, glad I tuned in. There's something I asked um, Thomas and to do uh, Thomas to do earlier. And it was say, you know, send me, send me some graphics from a couple of the ships that are in STO. And let's talk about the process. If you were, for instance, picking up STA, you pick up Utopia Planitia, you know, where do you start with the space frame selection and then building on top of it? And then he came through with, some wonderful art. I'll show the first picture and then let Thomas kind of talk about the picture, the origin of it. And then let's kind of go through the process. If you're picking up the UTP, uh, the UP book, Utopia Planitia, and you're in chapter, um, you know, four, um, how we adapt that. So let's look at this picture here. Can everyone see the, the ship mm-hmm. there? Thomas, mm-hmm. talk to us about this beautiful baby. I'll scroll through the couple pics you sent. Oh, thanks. Uh, so this is uh, the uh, USS Jojo, Jojo class. Um, uh, I think I ended up calling uh, in the, the lore that I wrote for it, the fast battle cruiser. Um, uh, I designed this ship for Star Trek Online as a, um, in the game, it is a cosmetic variant of the Walker class. So the Shenzhou from from Star Trek Discovery, you could buy this ship and use these pieces instead of the Walker pieces if you wanted. Um, I, you know, the, the the conceit was essentially take the the Shenzhou layout and turn it into a, you know, adapt it to the motion picture era style. Um, so it's roughly the same size as a Walker. In my head, it's not meant to be a, it is not a Walker refit. It is not meant to um take those pieces and 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 uh update them the, the way the constitution refit is um the lore for this class uh or i don't know I, do you, would i be getting ahead of myself if i go through the no please I, this okay. is exactly what we, I, because this is what we know the lore and then we're going to mm-hmm. talk about how to reverse engineer 
it into mm. FTA. Right, right. So one of the interesting things about this is originally when I started to do a Walker, a TMP motion picture era, excuse me, version of the Walker, um, I, I I wanted to do a Constitution style saucer, but then I put the uh, the Walker class next to the Constitution refit and noticed the Walker is actually a lot bigger. The saucer in the Walker class is a lot bigger, and one of my pet peeves is when um, uh, effects artists just sort of scale up the same component and call it a day, you know, like the, where you have like the, these giant motion picture nacelles or whatever. Yeah. There's the Walker Mm -hmm. class. Um, and so the, the saucer is way too big to be, um, reinterpreted as a constitution style saucer, but it's in the ballpark for an X, uh, Excelsior type saucer. Um, and Mm -hmm. so that's sort of, so I decided to go with the Excelsior route. And from there, I, then I had to explain, well, how come you see so many Excelsiors and Mirandas, but you've never seen this before? And so the um, the lore they came up with to explain that was that this is a um, competing project with the Excelsior class for the kind of um, turn of the 24th century. This is the new direction of Starfleet starships, and we're going to do the Excelsior multi-role cruiser, or this is kind of the height of the Cold War with the Klingons. So there's another faction in Starfleet that wanted to do, no, we need to build a, a battle cruiser that's going to be able to take on Katinga-class ships and win. And um, and so this leans heavily much more into like the militaristic side of Starfleet. And, and so... Part, one question, too, about mm-hmm. the name of it, the Giorgio. Talk to mm-hmm. us a little bit about... So uh, it's a little... It's, it's very... It's unclear to me, actually. So when I... You know, the all the... Um, mm-hmm the it, it like is Giorgio dead like according to starfleet i don't know i mean at first she wasn't because they brought her because they brought mirror Giorgio in to the discovery and said oh no she just went for retirement she didn't actually die at the binary stars but then then they classified everything to do with discovery when discovery went into the future and so she died again i don't know so <laughs> like ultimately i decided to name Giorgio as a casualty of the you know Tacuba's war um, because this, this essentially is Starfleet saying, you know, we're going to remember the people that, that fell in action against in that devastating war, and we're not going to let that happen again. So we're going to beat the Klingons to their own game. We're going to make this really big, powerful battle cruiser. Um, and, uh, and that's how we're going to retain, you know, a, you know, the, the mine shaft gap, essentially, um, if you're a strange love fan. Um, and, and so the reason that you don't see any of these ships anymore is obviously Kitamura Accords happen. And um, and just like the Washington Naval Treaty, um, they kind of imply that, you know, you know, is this going to be the end of Starfleet and Star Trek six? Right. Uh, because of the Kitamura Accords and peace between Starfleet and the Klingons. Um, I interpret that to mean there's some very heavy restrictions on what what kind of ships and starbases Starfleet can build following the Kitamura Accords. And so either these Giorgio ships are you know decommissioned or they're converted into different type you know exploration cruisers but they're not they're not really carried forward like the excelsiors are because the excelsiors as multi-role cruisers are much more flexible and able to sort of weather any sort of political fluctuations but but that's something uh as an aside when you're designing your ship it's really fun to think about not just uh well i mean there, there are two things right like what does this ship do like it's not just i want to make a cool starship it's like you know when they're designing ships in the navy they have a problem right we we need mm-hmm. small ships that can operate in littoral waters to prevent uh suicide boats from attacking oil tankers right and so they have this mission profile they build out so that's the same thing with starfleet um 
And so they solve a problem. The Klingons have way better battle cruisers than we do. We don't have any battle cruisers. We got to make a battle cruiser so that we can uh, uh, stay out with the Klingons. And um, so there's that. But then there's the political consequences because the, especially the Federation, they are not, you know, Starfleet doesn't operate in a vacuum. They have presumably civilian oversight and there were probably in, in, in my headcanon and some of the lore I've talked about, there was a lot of political backlash to the idea that Starfleet would build a battle cruiser. And you see echoes of that in the defiant later, right? Um, where it's like, Oh, Starfleet doesn't actually have a warship, you know, but it's, it's an escort. Um, so that's that's fun to think about too. Is like if you have this the ship that for whatever reason goes against the grain, what are the political consequences that your crew has to deal with whenever they go to a starbase or deal with an admiral who doesn't believe in what you're doing? I know it's all texture, right? It's all oh, world this building. Could have been a great chapter yeah. on its own. That's yeah. <laughs> let me ask you this then. So so is this lore that you just talked about? Is that somewhere? Like where would I find that lore for an STO ship like this? Uh, so I've. Um, that particular one, we actually did a Space Dock video. We partnered with the guys at Space Dock and did a whole lore video on that. We've done several of those now. Um, I also did a lot of writing for Eagle Moss. For, we had a 20-issue Star Trek Online Eagle Moss collection where we did some ship miniatures for um, uh, of ships in Star Trek Online. And they each came with a magazine that had lore about those ships and um and then stats and things like that. Um, and then the, the, in like the real life design process. So that's, uh, that's where most of that stuff lives. Um, otherwise it's, you know, in my head. <laughs> well, no, that's good. The reason I asked that is because I, again, I'm myself and Jim, like doing reverse engineering type episodes, there's going to be a lot, a lot coming up just about mm-hmm. TV shows. And we do, we talk about characters, but now based off that, Aaron, what Thomas just said, if I saw this ship, you know, the Giorgio, um, Again, what class of ship is it? It's, it's Giorgio class. That's the, that is the first. Okay. Yeah, that's the first ship in the class. So if I was starting off on this, Aaron, do I go do I go to the Walker class based off all the information and start there with that space? OK, well, that would be up. I guess that would be up to you. Mm-hmm. How I would approach this is I would say this is a Walker refit. Okay. Um, so I would go to the Walker class and then update it to the turn of the turn of the 23rd to 24th centuries and say, okay, well, it's a new class, but it's probably based off of a whole bunch of uh, refit and uh, analysis of the Walker class throughout the 23rd century. So it's a new class, but it's basically the Walker updated to let's say 2300. So since the Walker class was launched in let me pull it up here. 2195. Um, you're going to add 11 points to the systems of that base space frame. That's how I would do it. So you're basically adding two points to each one of those systems. And then one point to one of them. I'd likely add just the one point to comms on it. Um, I'd say it is a scale three because it's a saucer without a secondary hull. And there looks to be large chunks of, area of the ship that aren't for crew and our weapon storage. And that generally does not do well to um, structural integrity if the ship is hit. (laughs) So, you know, your magazine stores and and large batteries, I would say that it likely doesn't have rugged design as a talent because of the things that I see on it are lots of impulse crystal, the impulse crystal type things that you see on the refit on the top. Um, and so I would say it probably has an improved impulse drive 
those are those uh, the four little circle things that are on each side, and likely an expanded uh, shuttle bay because that shuttle bay is pretty large for for that ship. Um, and if I was that would that would be where I would leave the base space frame. Um, and if I was making a cl- uh, like a specific ship out of it, I would likely want to try to give it improved warp drive um, because of the Excelsior bits that are that are on it. Because I see Excelsior fins that would normally be on the on the saucer, the Excelsior class, um, and the, in the the actual warp nacelles have a little bit of Excelsior in the grilling. This gym is a friggin' masterclass on space. <laughs> I mean, I, like like Thomas said, I see I see Excelsior in this quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's great, and I also see refit bits. Uh, so, like, yeah, the the clearly the the dual photon torpedo launchers that are down there, the four tubes. Um, it was yeah, and then the 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 Miranda style roll bar that it's mounted on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, scale three. Do do what I said with the 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 systems. Yeah, it's a new class, or you could just say, yeah, this is a, a really heavily modified Walker, but new class, and then go with those ideas that I gave out, like improved impulse drive, you know, expanded shuttle bay. Yeah. Are there uh, are there mega phasers in? I don't know if SCA has that, or we would just call um, those phaser cannons. They, or they're phaser cannons. Okay. So what this looks like, it actually has phaser cannons and phaser banks. Yep. So I would just put both of those on there and photon torpedoes. Yeah, um, love it. Super cool. I love it. I love it. I just, this this design is just so exciting because this is exactly what I what I what I get when I'm reading Aaron's. Uh, descriptions like i get i read his descriptions i look at the art i'll find art online or whatever and it's like i've got so many ideas for this particular ship right now it's this the first of the class and you go out you're exploring new worlds you're doing new things you got all this new capabilities all these new things uh, i just i just love it and um my Michael, question can you can you go over to the the underside shot again really quick and jim keep going oh yeah no problem um, I was going to ask uh, first a clarifying question aaron did you write all the spaceships or all the, all the space frames for the uh, core book Yes. Okay. So um, I don't remember this conversation when we were developing the core book because I was focusing on other parts of it. And I was also getting involved in editing the, um, the adventure book. Uh, these are the voyages. So I may have missed this conversation. But so um, I know it, that previous versions of the RPG from other companies um, tended to present their ship classes and, and they presented them uh, along with some of, the, some of the names that Thomas was talking about where this is a you know an X class destroyer. This is an X class frigate. This is an X class cruiser, etc. Um, and I, I flipped through the core, but like we consciously didn't include that mm-hmm. as as descriptors in any of our ships. Uh, and I think that's a departure from some of the other RPGs that have come along. And I was just wondering, do, do you remember why we chose to do that? Um, I, I can say that w- right in the first days of development, when I started writing it, I had those ideas of, of doing that. Um, but in the end, we felt that destroyers, you know, or or like heavy cruisers, something like that, anything that sounded um, militaristic wouldn't fit in with Starfleet. Like heavy cruiser is used for for Enterprise in in the original series and, and in the movies. 
every now and then. And that that's fine because that doesn't really sound martial, but like destroyer or frigate, things like that. I think I might slip in frigate every now and then into some of the ship descriptions, maybe, but um, my idea of what those ship descriptors mean might be different than what the Navy might think. But I mean, a lot of those descriptors end up changing over time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like frigate and destroyer don't really mean the same thing in, in World War II as they did during the Civil War, or the revolution. So. Right. Yeah. Or or even now, right? World War yeah. II, a World War II destroyer is very different than a, a modern US Navy destroyer. And a um uh a Napoleonic frigate is very different than mm-hmm. A World mm-hmm. War II or a modern frigate, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And we're, and we're even actually seeing that right now. It's starting to change again because the Navy is commissioning a new class of frigate. And basically, they they want it to be a multi-role frigate that can do everything our destroyers can do. So even like what mm. frigates are big are, that's going to change in the next like 10 years. So like that those that nomenclature is very, is very fluid. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Time. Because I, I noticed, I, I was just flipping through the. Uh, <laughs> this is funny, uh, funny in hindsight, not funny now, but I mean funny in hindsight. The in the uh, discovery book, we actually left the descriptors in there. Uh, like we call the Cardenas class a fast cruiser. Uh, we call the McGee class a science vessel. You know, we call the uh, Shepard class a light cruiser. So we we mm-hmm. we got it into the discovery book unintentionally. I, I forgot to delete it. <laughs> I think but, I uh, think if it's... a player uh, if a player wants to approach either taking the walker and and. Uh, uh, you know, refitting it to this, or if they want to build a new ship frame, yeah. but they're of the, I don't want to say old school, but they're of the school that does make use of those descriptors like destroyer, destroyer escort, you know, fast cruiser, whatever. How, how could they kind of like implement that into the toolkit that we have? Would it be just a matter of picking a mission profile or like, what, what do you think? Is there another way that they could kind of approach that? So how I would approach it is um, a smaller ship historically might be like a frigate or a destroyer, and those might be scale three. You just say, hey, it's a scale three. A cruiser is generally going to be somewhere between scale four and six um, and not be fairly martial, let's say. Um, so you're not going to have like rapid fire torpedo system standard on it or heavy, you know, advanced shields, things like that. But then you might have a battle cruiser, let's say, or an, a destroyer escort, which might be a little more martial. So you have your rapid fire uh, torpedoes, advanced shields, improved hull integrity armor. And then you have your dreadnought like out of the France Joseph, um, which should be kind of beefy, should be, but beefy for Starfleet is a little different than beefy for like the Klingons, let's say but it still might have some more martial things and it might be scale five or six. So um, the, the Giorgio specifically, um, remember that that saucer is the size of the Excelsior saucer. It's yeah. actually a little bit bigger, I think. Um, so, you know, in terms of internal mass, this is still a bigger ship than like the Reliance mm-hmm. or the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when you, you know, you look at everything else going on there uh, for whatever that's worth. And then the, um, you know, it was definitely the the lore is intended as a as a battle cruiser, um, in the sense of I think World War One prior to World War One, um, uh, battle cruisers are created as this class of ship that they're essentially designed to destroy anything they can outrun, and uh, and so they're heavily armed and fast, but don't have much armor, and that's definitely what the Giorgio is right. So it would, if you're, if you're into the kind of Washington Naval treaty 
definitions of uh, these mm-hmm. ship types, then the Georgia would would very cleanly fit into that that battle cruiser description. Wow! Now I get to oh, make my mid. Now I get to make my mid level surface observation is that you know the Georgia's deflector grid you know, it's very similar to the NX-01 Enterprise mm-hmm. grid. So I get, I get to make my little observation. Yeah. On that one. Yeah. Thomas, one question I have about your uh-huh. uh, your renders. How many, uh, I count 32 total escape pods. Mm-hmm. Is that how many you put on there? I mean, I don't remember. I, I was sort of, some of that, honestly, is you're just like, it's like jazz, you know, you're just, you're just like ah, I need I need these things here, and and then you're looking at the motion picture refit, and you notice like oh, they're not symmetrical, and so I need to make sure that they're they're little offsets, and then you kind of you end up with what what you end up with. Um, but I mean, it's it's interesting because you see those on the saucer of the um, you know, they're definitely uh, they're on the saucer of the refit, mm-hmm. and I think they're on the excelsior as well but you don't see those little squares anywhere else on the, the, the like you don't see them hull or of either the the refit or the excelsior so yeah in, in the refit they're uh, and excelsior they're behind panels but mm-hmm. if you look at some of the the semi-official beta cannon mm-hmm. um stuff they're they're there or at least there should be space for them right uh with what we know and then yeah like uh ambassador classes and on when when it became tng you can actually legitimately count escape pods and go okay i know i can fit like four people in here so right. this is the crew size ah um, that was a, i was gonna ask you that so you count the number of escape pods to give an estimation on crew size yeah brilliant yeah, whatever yeah. i see and, and it doesn't it doesn't hold it doesn't hold true all the time right but when I see like details like this and I see escape pods, I'll start going, mm-hmm. oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Mm-hmm. And then I can go, oh, well, this has 32 escape pods. So it should have a crew of about 128. Mm-hmm. I hope people are taking notes on this. <laughs> no, really. I'm That's not me. Gonna... That, you know, yeah. you know your, your mileage little... may vary, right? Right. I mean, I... Over... Oh, go ahead, Tom. Well, I, I mean, I, I think my intention for what it's worth is, is much more in the ballpark of the Excelsior at four or 500, 600, whatever the Excelsior had, uh, maybe a little less than the Excelsior because it doesn't have a secondary hull. Um, Some escape pods hold up to 10 to 20 people though, right? Uh, I guess it depends. I mean, these are pretty small. And so that's why I don't know if those details, essentially they showed up because they're, they are a, you know, I wanted this to feel like a motion picture era ship, right? And so this is definitely the artist side of me. Like, well, this is a detail that the motion picture era ship has. Not really sure what it is. Uh, I guess it's an escape pod, but I just replicated that and put it on here in the same way that they did on the motion picture era ship. And so, um, but I didn't, I didn't want to also, if they were escape pods, I didn't want to add a bunch of extra ones because it, it's very important to get the style, the visual style. It's very important to like, you're you're not just replicating like the thing, but you're also replicating the the density of it, right? And the spacing of it, and the the placement of it. Uh, all of that goes to making it feel right. Um, yeah. So so yeah, there probably should be more escape pods for the crew that I had in mind. Um, that's that's certainly yeah. true. But what a, what a great design! What a great design choice choice to make, though, right? So maybe you're mm-hmm. creating a new space frame. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're creating a new space frame for an alien species. Mm-hmm. You 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 might want to think about okay, how many how, how big is the ship? How many escape pods does it have? 
what's that species philosophy behind escape pods, right? Right. Like, <laughs> like the, uh, you know, is it like the Titanic where they've got like a handful of lifeboats, mm-hmm. not enough for everybody on the ship, but it's, yeah, we got, we got enough that are right. required by the government, right? We haven't, we have plenty of boats if you go by that score, but, oh, you know, if we sink, well then, you know, half the, half the, half the population of the ship is screwed, you know, but maybe, you know, you know, like Klingons, you know, do they even have escape pods? Who knows? I, I think we, I think technically we know they do. But like maybe there's a maybe there's a species that that is like no if you're on the ship you're on that ship until it's destroyed or victorious and there are mm-hmm. no escape pods you're in it for for in it to win it right go home um, with your shield like, around I would, I would think you know I would think Starfleet would probably have enough escape pods on their ship to cover everybody on the crew and then some yeah right? mm-hmm. but of course you know with the, with the assumption also they're probably going to have shuttlecrafts as well. Uh, yeah. Well, that that's sure. the perfect segue for the sake of time and to get into another ship because I, <laughs> I want to do this exercise one more time. This ship blew me away. So, Thomas, give it to us. What the heck is what? <laughs> that? Is amazing. What is that? <laughs> this is the uh, Allied Fleet ship Kittimer. So this ah. is this is in Star Trek Online in the year twenty four ten. Um, the Klingon Empire, the United Federation of Planets, and the Romulan Republic have gone through several pan-galactic crises together and uh, only survived by working together and sort of realized that, you know, if we want to keep, if we want to keep facing down these existential threats, like the Iconians, uh, the Herc, um, you know, several other, any new content we make for Star Trek Online, um, that we're going to have to pool our resources, not just in, in our own separate fleets, but sort of understand, um, our differences appreciate them and collaborate on new technology. And so they, they formalized this in the uh, Kittimer Alliance um, named after, you know, the planet Kittimer, of course, and that's the symbol of the Kittimer Alliance on the ship there. Um, and, uh, and the first um, starship of this new allied fleet service is the AFS Kittimer uh, combined ship number one, CSN 01. And, uh, and this is it. So this is a, um, uh, this is also about a battle cruiser, about um, 700 meters long, uh, I think a little over that. And um, uh, okay, I got some things to say, but yeah. we're gonna dig into this. I'm going to get my remedial start on it first. First right. of all, it looks like you gave a little love to cleave ships on this. A little love to cleave. <laughs> a little, uh-huh. I know it's a little tilted, but it seems like that has the cleaving power if it had to. Um, but the second thing I was thinking as I'm looking at this ship, I'm like, oh, my goodness. You could totally take the Klingon core rulebook and the standard core rulebook and have a combined fleet. I mean, this could be the <laughs> ultimate officer exchange vessel. I, I, yeah. I was just like, the stories coming off just looking at this are blowing my mind. Yeah, and, and one of the things in the the lore. So this was we did actually did make an Eagle Moth model of this ship. Oh wow! And so when I when I was writing the lore for it. I, I mentioned about how one of the challenges they have when designing it is um, they had to figure out, okay, where are we going to put the targ pens? <laughs> and then we have to make all these targ secret pen. doors for our Romulan officers. You know, like they had <laughs> to think about how these very diverse crews are going to live and work together on the same ship and had to make all, all sorts of concessions for that. Yeah. Hmm. I, I love That's it because it's, it's, I, I, I see the Negvar in here. I see echoes of the Negbar and of course the you know Federation ships. I, I just love that. I had, I don't think I've seen this design before. It looks it's amazing yeah. though. And you're right, Michael. It's sparking off all kinds of great ideas. And it just makes me think that we we need to <laughs> we need it we need to have a talk because I think a STO 
supplement would be amazing with all this with the 12 yeah. years of lore from the game yeah we could just go even further into the weeds on starship design and, and more space frames and all that stuff so I'll yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm very, if I can, if I can say, I mean, I'm, I'm very incredibly proud of this one. And yeah. I, one of the things I'm really proud of too, is actually how, uh, it was a very div uh, divisive design when we launched it, which actually, if you're an artist, that means you did something right. Right. If people have an emotion reaction, either positive or negative, Absolutely. like the fact that that means they care, right. And you're evoking something mm -hmm. in them. So uh, a lot of people have been really, really love this ship and a lot of people really hate it. And to me, that tells me we did our, our job well. And all credit goes to Hector Ortiz, who is Star Trek Online's concept artist. He's, you know, uh, banger after banger, as the kids say, he just does amazing work. And, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of internally, there wasn't, you know, a lot, there were a lot of people who were like, mm. I don't know if we can do this. And I was like, I know Hector can do it. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the enterprise met a bird of prey behind a moon and had a secret. Exactly. Yep. It's great. And I have a question about a piece of this, Thomas. Uh -huh. Um, can you go, what are the other pictures, Michael? There we go. There, there are these round things with, yeah, these right yeah, mm -hmm. those things. What what are those? So those are um, uh, anti. So the weapons. So this doesn't use phaser disruptor weapons. This uses a uh, a type of weapons, energy weaponry called anti-proton weapons, which I think show up in Voyager maybe. Um, but um, but they are you know they're a type of weapon in Star Trek Online. Okay. And and uh, and we just decided we wanted to. And they're it's a very it's considered a very advanced type of energy weapon. Yeah, so, yeah. We have those in, in this book. Oh, yeah, great. we actually yeah, they're they're on page 78, anti-proton. It's uh it, it's listed in the Utopia Planitia book. Very cool. So this is gonna have a cloaking device, right? Yeah. Uh I, okay. believe, it, I believe it has a cloaking device. Um it also has a flag bridge. Um uh, oh, yeah, here? I think so. Yeah, this is mm -hmm. this is the first ship in what's meant to be a fleet of you know of the Allied Fleet Service, right? So, mm -hmm. um, although since it's the first ship, it does it's done a lot uh, on its own as well. It's mm -hmm. it's considered a battle cruiser because it's a Klingon, you know, it's so heavily influenced by Klingon mm -hmm. ships, and pretty much you know, most Klingon ships are battle cruisers because that's just what a Klingon ship is, like mm -hmm. um, intrinsically. Um, but this is going to be more of a, like you said, like a flag, a flagship, or, you know, it's the, the lead ship of the Kittimer Alliance. And so but it'll have a flag. Romulans involved too? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The, the Romulans. So in Star Trek online, that's a whole other big chunk okay. of lore that we've done about, um, the, so the Romulan empire kind of fractures once, um, you know, the, the Romulan supernova happens. And then in Star Trek Online, you play a Romulan, but you're playing a member of the Romulan Republic, which mm -hmm. is a, you know, essentially a good guy Romulans, uh, a representative government um, from survivors of the Romulan Empire led by Detan, who Detan is, if you remember, start the uh, next generation episode unification. Uh, there's a Romulan teenager that goes up to Spock and shows him a little Vulcan artifact. Yeah. That kid is the tan and so we say that he grows up to lead you know the next generation of the romulan people into a better place right under the the mentorship of spock so then um, i have to ask is this clean is this uh cloaking device romulan or klingon uh this klingon is probably klingon uh, this this ship is primarily we actually have three Kinemer alliance ships in the game now um and so we have this is a fed klingon hybrid ship and then we have a klingon romulan hybrid ship and then we have a romulan fed hybrid ship do either um, of them, do either of those um run off quantum singularity drives i don't remember like the, the, so in star trek online you actually have 
that's a that's a game power that you could have a slink singularity drive but i don't remember if we ended up doing that for for the other romulan you know the romulan hybrid ships or not um we might not have simply for game mechanic reasons like under the hood reasons um but in more i you know sure <laughs> like we could so now i have to ask aaron where would you even start reverse engineering this one <laughs> no this isn't it isn't really that hard with our system with our okay. system it really is it's this is scale six okay. um it's going to have federation starship and klingon starship traits um it's going to be basically the 2400 uh you know the year 2400 amount of system points so that means since it's scale six, it's going to have 62 systems. Um, cloaking device as one, one, uh, one talent. Command ship as a second talent. Most likely, I would say rugged as a trait, as a talent, I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and there isn't, a, there isn't a good shot of its rear. So I can't really tell you what its impulse uh, drives that's that's the rear so it's it's kind of obscured there's a giant like the bird of prey it has a giant impulse main impulse engine in the center and then it has two kind of vector thrust impulse drives so flanking i might say i might not give it a talent that's related to impulse or, or or rcs but i might say secondary reactors and then leave the rest for the the other two for the players and sure. get the mission profile um, anti-proton weapons, probably photon torpedoes because both the Federation and Klingons use that, mm -hmm. but it's 2400 and this is supposed to be a flagship. So why not go quantum instead? That makes mm -hmm. a little more sense to me. Um, plus one command, maybe even plus two command because it has a flying flag bridge. I mean, plus two command and then probably a plus one security because that's pretty, if it's a battle cruiser, it's a battle cruiser. It's, it's a warship. So give it plus one security. Jim looks. Giddy. There you go, folks. Go, Jim. You look so giddy. <laughs> oh man, it's just, it's just you know, I'm giddy about just listening to this and, and being so far down in the weeds that we're we're totally geeking out about starships and starship design and stuff, which mm -hmm. I just love. I just I love hearing it. Like I, I'm not always good at coming up with it myself, but like I love hearing the stories. But as I've been listening to you all go go about go on about this ship, um, what I've been thinking about is I would I would love to run a campaign, like an admiralty level campaign of everybody who is involved in the design of this thing, like all the <laughs> politicking, all the, all the Klingon generals and all the Federation admirals all getting together into a room, arguing back and forth about what this ship was going to look like, what, um, what systems were going to be on it. You got the, you know, the, the Klingons slamming on the table, walking out of Utopia Planitia or right. whatever, you know, not getting what they want and the Federation not getting what they want. And, you know, probably a Vulcan, uh, Admiral trying to mediate and having a real hard time with it. But I just, that story of like, how is, how did this thing come to be if it's not already in the STO lore, right? Like taking a step back and saying, okay, well, here's the, here's the end result, the ship and it's off doing its missions. And that's awesome. But like, how did it, how did we get there? Right. How did, mm -hmm. how did all that politicking happen? Who was involved in that? And what, what could the player characters do to influence this, this end result, right? Maybe the mission of the campaign is you have to work together with the Klingons to come up with this new ship design. To, to celebrate the alliance and to cement that alliance, et cetera, go. <laughs> well, this ship alone, this ship alone would be more action-packed than DS9. When you think about the different ambassadors and people yeah. who'd be coming on board, you know, Klingons have species that Federation hasn't met. Romulans have species that that Klingons mm -hmm. haven't met. Like this would be the hub 
of activity. And if it was built at Utopia Planitia, the show would be called Star Trek Utopia Planitia, just the build up you're talking about. Oh, yeah. And and this this has a crew of at least a thousand on it, just counting the escape pods. So you're going to have tons of different species on board. Uh, There's lots of role playing opportunity there, just with different ideas. And Thomas, was there any idea that maybe over here is a gallery or promenade of sorts, like a shopping mall inside just for delegations and ambassadorial events? So, I mean, when, you know, we're, we're kind of thinking about how this ship would be used. Um, um, yeah, I would definitely ha- be able to hold functions like that. But I also see it um, less as a, you know, this is more of the Iron Fist than the Velvet Glove. Like this is... You know, if this if this thing shows up, you better pay attention because it's a it's a bruiser, right? It's it's got you know anti proton weaponry. Like, yeah, I didn't want to I didn't want to lean so hard in diplomacy. We forget about the fact that it's also a Klingon ship too, and you know yeah. they don't mess around, right? Um, Can I ask you, like most big battleships like this, would it probably be accompanied by some escorts nearby at all times? So yeah, I mean, and that's a, that's something you know when I was thinking about the lore of the ship that uh, probably what happened is when they stood up the Allied Fleet Service initially, there weren't any bespoke ships for it. So you probably had the Federation, we're going to donate a squadron, and the Romulans are going to donate a squadron, and the Klingons are going to donate a squadron, and they get repainted into this um, you know this Kittimer livery, and now they're Kittimer ships, and everybody on board they're Kittimer officers, uh, and maybe they even like start mixing crews. Who knows? Um, and then so you could have, depending on the mission. Uh, you could have the Kinemer operate with a mixed squadron like that. Um, this is essentially, I mean, the, the thought exercise here that I was trying to go through is like, what if NATO had its own Navy, right? Uh-huh. Like if NATO operated, it didn't just operate with its member nations equipment, but actually, no, this is a NATO aircraft carrier. Like what's that like? Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, and that's, that's just sort of, that sounds like a nightmare, frankly, but like, <laughs> but, but also w- w- through the rose colored glasses of Star Trek. Right. And it's very important to me. And one of the reasons that, um, I was the one who suggested this not to like take the credit for the idea, but it was my idea. And the, the reason I wanted to do that is because the storyline in Star Trek online starts with the Federation and Klingon at war. Um, and so I wanted, and, and this ship was for our, our 10th anniversary. So for our 10th anniversary, I wanted to make something really unique and special that also encapsulated that idea of a hopeful future of Star Trek. So like if you've been with Sestio through the whole, you know, 10 years uh, at the time, you started off blowing up Klingons in your little Miranda, and then and then you progress through the story and you see how the plot evolves and how they started the clans, the Federation start working together. And then the Iconians show up and then the Herc show up and then the Zincathi and all these things happen. And, and, and these different powers who used to be enemies now grow close together to solve all these problems. And so, yes, I, like I think the, the Kittimer must've been a very difficult baby to sire. Um, uh, but at the same time, I want it to be a success, right? At the end of the day, I want it to show that, that um, there is strength and diversity and, and that when we work together, we can create incredible things. And, and so that's kind of the moral of the whole, you know, of, of the, the idea of the Kittimer and what it sort of represents. This ship I'm, is I'm curious. Then, uh, I love that you said that. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So I'm curious then uh, what's the uh, command structure like on the, on the Kittimer? Is it a, is it a joint command or is there a, 
is a Federation uh, commander or Klingon commander or like what, what did that uh, look like? So the, the captain of the Kittimer is, is a Klingon. Um, his name is uh, Captain Kagrin, and he is actually a character who shows up uh, during the Iconian War story arc. Um, mm-hmm. So the Iconians, you know, they return from the past and they've got, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of, of super advanced starships and they're going to kill everybody. Um, and then uh, the only way that you can take them out is time travel. Essentially, that's the only for whatever reason, Iconians can't travel through time. So you team up with the Krenum, um and you get a, you know, Anorax type starship like the from the year of hell you get one of those things and you try to erase iconians from existence and it doesn't work so then you um you trying to find another way and you go back in time and kagrin is there with you he's been sort of doing this operation he's just a non-player character um and eventually he kind of comes to understand what actually happened and helps to resolve the situation not through violence but he understands why you know where the uh, anger the Iconians are feeling comes from and helps to resolve it. Um, and so it's a little weird that the Klingon did that, but you know, um, it, it's cool. I think it's actually kind of cool. So when we were picking the commander for the Kittimer, we wanted somebody who was Nastia before. We didn't want it to be, I didn't want it to be a human or, or actually I didn't want it to be a Starfleet person. And I felt like because Kagrin was the one, you know, was instrumental in the resolving the Iconian war peacefully, that he was a very natural fit where everybody would respect him, right? He was at the center, the the center point of this crisis and found a way out without without actual, you know, more bloodshed. So the yeah. Federation would respect him, the Romulans would respect him, and obviously the Klingons would would well, I found um, something cool too talking about cool. the crew. I'll, I'll share it real quick. Look at that. I, I just typed in, <laughs> typed in to look for the uniforms. I'm like, well, what kind of uniforms would these people wear? Yeah, so we have uniforms for the Kittimer Alliance now. So that's yeah. as well. <laughs> I have to ask, who's, that, who's the character on the right? Oh, I don't know. That's some the guy. leader. <laughs> the the leader all, these yeah, are all player characters. Thought, the leader. Yeah. yeah, these are all player characters. That's so awesome. they're all going to look a little weird. But, but yeah, we do have the uniforms are kind of supposed to be a hybrid Klingon Starfleet look. Mm-hmm. How inspiring. I mean, I just got to say, you know, again, because of time, I can't get into STO, unfortunately. You know, I'm, I'm so into STA and, and other things. But the creativity, the marriage, again, of STO and STA and now understanding um, the mechanics of how to build a starship, like where to start and, and just all that lore. It, it's just to me inspiring me to get out there and play more games, which I never have time to play. Right. But uh, this this was one of the best designs, Thomas, that I saw. Um it definitely caught my attention. So I'm so glad you you uh, shared that one with us. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun to talk about it for sure. Very cool. Boy, I mean, I know we could go on and on and on, <laughs> but again, the goal of today's um, uh, uh, continuing conversations was to highlight chapter four of the Utopia Planitia book. I wanted people to understand the psychology behind the design. I mean, we had Aaron, we have Thomas, some of the best ship designers, um, uh, uh, that we have and in inspiring me now to take another look at that chapter and appreciate, you know, that, that these frameworks are really helping us to build the narrative. Um, as you all were speaking, it's not just the ship, it's the story and ships are characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and Utopia Planitia, I think hit the, hit the mark on that. Jim, you want to give us some words about this experience? Uh, <laughs> I mean, this particular experience about this episode, this has just <laughs> been great just to listen to, to two subject matter experts just totally geek out all over this stuff. Uh, I could, I could, I could go another six hours just listening to all this and, you know, throwing a little questions to prompt 
uh, conversation and stuff. And, you know, we could dig into the, uh, the Franz Joseph technical manual and all the other technical manuals, but I don't think we need to, I think we've covered the, I think we've hit it on the head pretty good here. <laughs> I don't think we need to go in the weeds any further, but no, this has been great. And I, I just want, I hope uh, players understand that like you can take the toolkit that's in Utopia Planitia and literally build anything like any, anything Star Trek ish, or even from another property and port it into Star Trek, you know, by making some tweaks and using the, the toolkit. Like if you see, if you see some cool ship that's in a different, um, different franchise or in a one-off movie or something like, uh, I'm thinking, um, the last Starfighter. I'm oh, thinking, yeah. uh, battle beyond the stars that, that, that crazy, <laughs> that crazy ship with the, the NSA protector. In, yeah. Enemy mine, enemy mine. Yeah, yeah, Galaxy Quest, enemy mine. <laughs> and there's, there's, I mean, there's no shortage of, mm-hmm. of science fiction movies and television shows out there. Heck, you know what? What I've been thinking about because I was actually looking at the uh, the technical manual the other day. I would love to do a um, an, uh, a space 1999 Eagle and mm-hmm. uh, and see what that looks like. I mean, it obviously would be very old school, maybe like you know, probably scale two because uh, it's they're relatively small not, not much bigger than a runabout <laughs> but just you know just thinking about it, it's like oh i could build a i could build a uh, an eagle uh, type ship and like port it in and like it'd be a new ship for some new species in star trek and it would fit right i could just change the the aesthetic of the ship design so that it's not completely ripping it off of uh, the tv show but i mean there's just so many possibilities here and so if you take utopia planitia and literally any of our other supplements especially like the the gamma quadrant and the delta quadrant where you've got all those other new alien species and even uh, even shackleton i guess you could take the calmurans and the binchari and uh and create some amazing new ships with all the stuff that's in the book so mm-hmm. i just I, I can't wait to see once this finally gets out into regular distribution right the books actually get out there and more people use it i just can't wait to see what kind of stuff people come up with like i've already I've already seen some streamers and uh and gamers out there starting to create new stuff and putting it up on continuing mission and i just can't wait to see what else comes along because you know, Star Trek Online is continuing to, to fire off new ships. They've got, what, 600 ships in the library. Um, a lot of that stuff hasn't gotten into game format yet. So, um, you know, if you're, a, if you're a blogger for a continuing mission, like, you got a full-time, well, not a full-time, <laughs> but you got, you got job security ahead of you because there's so many ship classes. You know, right. and I, haven't even, I haven't even touched the comic books and the novels and the video games that have come out over the last 50, mm-hmm. 56 years. There's no shortage of space frames that you could build for just the Federation, right? Not to mention all the different uh, alien species. So I just hope people have fun with it. Yeah, let's rotate, in fact, with our gratitude and appreciation. I actually want Thomas to make sure that you, um, I want you to plug where besides playing STO, which people really should do if they have the opportunity to do, because, you know, the little bit I played, it was addictive and I was like, I had to, uh, you know, balance (laughs) my time. But if people want to, if they see a, a ship in STO, repeat one more time, where can they go to find a little bit lore on it so they can go ahead and reverse engineer it into a game for STA? Where would you send them? So I would probably have them look at the Star Trek Online wiki. They're, they're usually pretty good about collating. If there is any uh, lore that shows them a devlog or an Eagle Moss magazine or whatever, usually that gets ported over to the STO wiki. So if you just Google STO wiki or Star Trek Online wiki, um, uh, you'll you'll get there. Um, and, uh, and that's a great, it's a, it's a great resource for the developers too, <laughs> to, to go on that. So, um, yeah, I think that's a great place to start to look for, for more about Star Trek online starships. Okay. Fantastic. I want people to make sure to know that. Cause we know I, we go into the weeds all the time when I'm writing a game, I just end up over here. So I like having more resources. Let's do thank yous all the way around Thomas before uh, we sign off with we'll Thomas, Aaron, myself, and then Jim to close it out, uh, give our thank yous. To whoever you want shout out um 
yeah, I want to thank uh, I want to thank you guys for just letting me be a part of this this project. It was a it was a ton of fun, and um, uh, you know, I just I, I we've been working on I've been working on SEO for over a decade now, and and uh, it's 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 great. Right, I've always had the ambition of seeing the work we've been doing in SEO seep out outside of the game and live in kind of the greater fandom consciousness. And I really appreciate your work in enabling that with, uh, with the Utopia Panacea book. So thank you so much. Aaron. Um, th thanks to Modifius to let me actually be a part of this and Jim specifically. And then thank you to the fans who have supported the game, supported what we've been doing and have given us feedback and, and, the passion to keep us going to, to make us feel like, Hey, we are actually doing something here for that are that, that's making people happy and letting people enjoy Star Trek a little more. Good. good. Now me, I know I always do the brick and mortar. So the other day I was driving through Concord, California. I pulled off over at flying colors, comic books uh, in, in Concord because I need to get my, I need a hard copy. I do know mostly digital comic books now, but I needed my 400th issue of Star Trek comic mm -hmm. and I needed Picard issue number one. So I pulled yes. off and those guys were so nice. And, you know, I just dropped, I was like, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, do some freelance writing for Star Trek Adventures. And we had a great conversation. Um, and they pointed me to where I, I'm on the hunt for board cubes at game shops. So I mm -hmm. pointed me to the local game shops. There were none. Um, but I really appreciate brick and mortars out there who carry uh, the games, Star Trek Adventures, and are so hospitable to people and trying to, you know, run games to get more people into it. It's one of the best, most refreshing uh, forms of recreation out there. Again, each game usually ends with a happy ending, which is so different than media nowadays. So we love giving our praise to brick and mortar who, who uh, give us this beautiful escapism. All right, Jim, close it off for us. Yeah, I, I want to thank, I think I've said it before, but I'll say it again because it can't be said often enough. I want to thank everybody in Star Trek from the very beginning all the way up to now, who have been involved in designing starships, either in, in on paper, in, in physical models, and then moving on into CGI. I think uh, they, they really created the ships to be another character on the show that is every bit as iconic and as, as, as important as the actors on the show, right? So you've got Kirk and, and you've got the Enterprise. You can't have Star Trek without both of them. Like, I mean, they, both of them are Star Trek, right? I mean, it's, every ship is so important to the franchise. So everybody who's ever, there's so many names, I couldn't possibly name them all, but thanks to all of them. Um, I certainly want to echo the, the thanks to Thomas. I, I'm so glad we finally were able to connect and get you involved in the, in the discovery book. And then it's uh, Utopia Planitia and then, you know, whoever, what comes next, there'll, there'll be more, I'm sure. Uh, as long as you're happy playing with us, we'd love to keep playing with you. And uh, if there's anything we can do to support STO in terms of artwork, like I, I don't think you need our artwork as much as we'd love to have yours, but if there's anything you all need from uh, any of our products, we're happy to share it and cross-pollinate because we're we're benefiting from the cross-pollination every bit as much as you are, possibly even more because obviously by the virtue of the fact that you're a video game, you have a much bigger fan base and a much bigger gamer base. And uh, it's just, uh, I, I've, I mean, just in the last two weeks since uh, since we started this thing uh, pre-order, I've seen just a huge amount of interest in the game from, from circles that we hadn't really touched before. And awesome. a lot of exposure, right? It's just getting the word out there that this thing exists. And uh, I'm just so excited to see what, what comes next. Um, but in the short term, I'm just excited for this one. But yeah, thanks to all, to, to Thomas, especially to Aaron. Uh, I know you sent me that pitch a couple of years ago and we're finally here. <laughs> so uh, I hope we did you good. I hope I didn't uh, disappoint you too much. I know we had to, to trim a lot and change things around. And 
Um, but I think it worked and we yeah. have plenty yeah. of work to do. It, so it, it happens. Um, that's, that's <laughs> the business, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but finally, um, I'll also echo what you've already said and I'll say thank you to the fans because if we didn't have such a passionate fan base for, for Star Trek, Star Trek adventures and starships in general, there's no way we could have done this book. There's no way at all. We, we wouldn't have been doing this game for six and a half years uh, without the fan base. So thank you for being passionate. Thank you being, for being so supportive of each other. Like I see it all the time on social media and discord and all the other forums that the, the fans really support each other uh, with questions and inspiration and, and uh, fan made material, et cetera. And, you know, thank you to Michael for creating continuing mission right at the very beginning of the uh of the game's life really because I don't Johnny think, and Colin and yeah. a whole bunch of and everybody at continuing mission. Yeah. Because I don't think there is another STA fan site anywhere close to continuing mission. And it just may be because I don't know of it, but I don't think I've ever seen one come up other than like the files that are on the Facebook group or whatever. But uh, I think you, you set the gold standard very early on for what a fan site could be and do. And, uh, and that's just a, a huge benefit. So thank you for that too. Not, not to sound self-serving, but obviously, you know, thank you. And I know we don't. Yeah, we're fans. And like I said, I, I, you know, I represent the fans and the people who just love it. And so we appreciate the art and I love celebrating everybody involved. Like I said, for Star Trek, fans make the genre, so they deserve their voice. And we try to give that to them on continuing missions. All right. Well, I'm definitely going out with this money shot here. For those of you who listened to this <laughs> on podcast and didn't watch, you have got to go back and watch this on YouTube because these ship designs were awesome. But uh, we're out of here. IDIC. Love y'all. Live long and prosper. Be safe. Be well. We'll talk to y'all next time. Bye.